Good morning. It's Father's Day, but ladies, don't feel like you're left out. There's an opportunity for you to enjoy something that I highly want to commend to you. Um, a number of women in our congregation have opened up their homes to have brunches to try and cultivate hospitality among us. Uh, that's one of the most encouraging things that I've seen God do among us is just this warmth and a, a welcomeness to people as they, they come into our church. So if you aren't hosting one of those or if you aren't already signed up for one, they are at different times during the day and during the week. Uh, let me highly commend that to you. You'll find the sign up out in the atrium area. I would be going, but I'm the wrong gender. So just putting that out there. All right. Well, if you would join me in prayer, we'll get to God's word this morning. Father, as we come to your word, we have so many things on our hearts and our minds this week. So easy to be distracted, thinking about the next thing we have to do tomorrow, the next thing waiting for us at work, even how we'll celebrate Father's Day after the service. Would you help us to quiet our hearts, slow down our minds, to be ready to receive your word for what it is, the very source of life our souls need. Help us now to fully absorb it, to sit under your teaching and to come away as different people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm afraid you will render your talents useless, both to yourself and to mankind. Those are the words of English Prime Minister William Pitt to his political friend and ally, William Wilberforce. In the 17th century, William Wilberforce was a rising star in the British political scene. He was someone that people described as having a silver tongue. He couldn't give a speech that wasn't captivating or moving. He came from the right sort of family. He was rich. He was good looking. And he had a string of victories behind him and his friend William Pitt that made people think this duo is unstoppable. Everything was going great until something unexpected happened. Wilberforce became a committed Christian. And with that came some complications to his political involvement. He started to recognize within himself a tendency toward pride. Even as he had these great political abilities and skills, he started to see himself as more and more guilty before a holy God. Not only that, he realized that so much of what his maneuvering in politics was itself sinful. And he started to grapple with this question, can I remain in parliament and follow Jesus? Believers have been wrestling with this question in different arenas of life, back as far back since Jesus was walking this earth. Maybe you've heard the phrase that some people think that Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. It's the same idea. How is it that you are supposed to live in a world, a world that is obviously sinful and broken as a citizen of heaven. Well, it's this very question that Jesus writes or preaches this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 13 through 16. Jesus is going to show us that citizens of heaven, far from withdrawing from society, 
are actually here for the benefit of it. That as a Christian, you are here for the good of the world as an ambassador of Jesus. We'll see this as we explore this section of the Sermon on the Mount in two sections. First is in verse 13, we'll see that you are here to preserve the world. And then we'll see in verses 14 through 16 that you are here to project Jesus into this world. And as we study all this together, we'll come away realizing that far from withdrawing from the world, Christians are called to be a benefit to it as ambassadors of Jesus. Now, if you remember back with me last week, we were studying the second half of the Beatitudes. And the last one of those Beatitudes dealt with persecution. Now, we said that as someone became a more obviously invisible citizen of heaven, as their affections changed and the way they desired God's rule and reign in their own life and the world around them began to change, that they would start to encounter opposition from the world even to the point where many times Christians would lose their very lives for the sake of Jesus. Well, there's a flip side to that coin that verses 13 through 16 show us this morning. We won't always just find pain when we are consistent Christians in the world. Sometimes we'll find we are of great benefit. Jesus unpacks this for us using two images that are really parallel to each other. Just look down with me in verses 13 and 14. Just let your eyes scan across the first part of those verses. Look how he says it. He says, you are the salt of the earth. Now look down in verse 14. You are the light of the world. You see that parallel? You are the salt. You are the light of the world, of the earth. And it's this classical Hebrew or ancient East form of poetry establishes one truth, and then uses a second run through that truth to expand it slightly. So Jesus is going to give us two metaphors that are really about the same general thing, extending the metaphor slightly to show us that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we're here for the good of the world. That first metaphor shows us that we are here to preserve society. Jesus begins with this image of salt. Now, most of us, when we think about salt, our minds immediately go to a condiment. Maybe you're thinking about uh, wonderfully greasy waffle fries that are salted just right at this moment. Or maybe a a pickle that has a wonderful salt flavor to it. Um, Lunch is not too far away. I'm sure your mind is going there already. It's okay. It's, It's only natural. We tend to think of salt along those lines. But in the ancient East, salt was far more fundamental to life. I mean, sure, they used it as a condiment. But salt was chiefly an agent to preserve food. I mean, we don't, they didn't have frigidaires. They didn't have deep freezers they could put their meat in. So when they killed an animal to eat it, they had to do something. They either had to eat it immediately, or they had to do something to keep putrefaction, rot, from setting in. So you would salt meat. You would rub the salt into it. You would put it in a solution of water and salt. And when you got enough salt into meat, what it does is it kills the bacteria inside of it, and the meat is preserved. So you're able to store it and use it later. Jesus here describes Christians as the preserving agents of the earth. Now, have you noticed this, that 
as you become more transparently and consistently a Christian around non-Christian people, sometimes their behavior starts to change a little. I was down in Florida where I grew up, um, and I was discipling a group of guys. And uh, we found that a really fruitful way to do outreach in South Florida is to go out to outdoor basketball courts and play pickup games. Uh, the weather's nice enough, you can do it pretty much year-round. And if you go week after week, the same times, you'll meet the same group of people, you get to get in conversations with them. So I'd gone with this group of guys, and we become kind of known on these courts. Um, and uh, little by little, we noticed that there were some guys outside of our group that would go out of their way to make sure they played on our court. Uh, and one time, one of the guys on our, from my little discipleship group asked a guy we knew to be an atheist, we were like, hey, man, what, why is it you want to play with us instead of the other courts? There's like eight other courts to choose from. Why are you playing with us all the time? He said, you know, I just noticed when I play with you guys, I feel like I'm a better person. <laughs> it's like I don't curse as much. I'm not getting in fights. Uh, I, I've, I just feel like the other courts are so negative. There's something different about your court. So I, I, I want to play with you guys. Is that okay? I'm like, yeah, of course, yeah. You know, uh, another time I got invited by someone to go play at their courts, um, and he knew I was a Christian, and he knew I was a minister, and so he kind of warned me. He's like, hey, you know, the group of guys we're going to play with, they're a little rough around the edges, so don't be offended. I said, ah, no problem. So I, I went with him, and we got to the court, and before that hand, he said, guys, we're, there's going to be no cursing tonight. We're going <laughs> to we're we're play a clean game, and so we got into the game, and... Uh, Pretty quickly, someone gets fouled, they get upset, and let out just a, a string of profanity. And again, this non-Christian friend, mind you, he stops the game, and he goes to the guy, he's like, hey man, you cannot be talking like that. That is not okay. He's like, you need to apologize to the priest. <laughs> now, close enough, I mean, uh, you know, I've been called worse things. Well, my guess is you've seen this in your own life, right? That the more transparently you're known as a Christian, the more people just start to accommodate to that and change around you. That's you acting as salt. You're actually restraining the worst influences on the human heart just by your very presence. Jesus says to a group of uneducated, poor Palestinians, he says, you are the salt of the earth. And each of us who call on the name of Christ today, we follow in that same lineage. We're here for the good of the world. But Jesus also gives us a warning. You can see that in the second half of the verse. There's a danger. It's possible to lose your effectiveness. He says you can lose your saltiness. Look in verse 13. He says, uh, how, uh, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, if you know anything about uh, chemistry and the like, you may know that salt as a pure compound actually can't lose its saltiness. But you have to understand, in Jesus' day, they didn't have refineries, so the type of salt that they would have been familiar with would have been salt mixed with minerals and other impurities. And in those cases, it's very possible that whatever hunk of rock that looks like salt with enough water or with enough other garbage gets mixed in with it, it actually starts to lose its ability to do what salt's supposed to do. What, what do you do with it at that point? 
You can't toss it in your garden. It still has enough salt to kill everything. The only thing it's useful for is to be used to fill potholes. You just toss it on the ground because it's useless. Jesus' point is pretty easy to see here. A Christian that loses their visible purity in the eyes of the world is useless. It's possible to ruin your ability to be salt in this earth through your own negligence and sin. That basketball outreach worked out so well in Florida. When I moved up to the Midwest, I tried to replicate it. I moved into a very Christian uh, sort of suburb of Chicago and had a hard time finding guys to reach out to. So we, uh, we worked really hard. We found some guys to invite to our church gym. I got a group of guys from church to play basketball with them, figuring we would do the same sort of thing. You know what ended up happening? One of the guys that we brought started cursing, getting in fights. At one point, he berated someone so intensely, he ran them out of the building. It got to a point where we had no hearing with the people whatsoever. We had ruined our witness. I had to shut the whole thing down. It's very possible for us to ruin our witness to this world and thereby lose our influence. Salt can lose its saltiness. Dr. Albert Moeller, president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, said with lament that evangelical Christianity in the U.S. had lost its effectiveness in the public square when it comes to matters of morality and sexuality, largely because of our failure as the church to, to deal with divorce. That when the culture was turning on divorce, the evangelical church, instead of standing on the truth of God's word in the face of cultural opposition, instead, largely, the evangelical church caved. Now that we're in the midst of a sexual revolution, we don't have a spiritual foundation, a moral foundation to stand on. It's possible, uh, that's true at a national level. Realize it's true in your individual life. It's quite possible for you to lose your ability to do the very thing God's put you here for, to be salt in the people God's put in your life. Do you ever fly off the handle at work and something doesn't go your way? Friend, you are losing your ability to be salt in your office. What about at home? Do you hold on to bitterness? Are you passive-aggressive when you feel like you've been slighted? Realize your kids are watching. You are losing your saltiness before your very children. You have a group of non-Christian friends that maybe you just go, go with the flow a little more than you know you should because you don't want to make waves. Friend, by, by not showing that you're different, you're actually losing the good that you are bringing to your friends' lives. You're losing your saltiness. As Christians, we need to be careful to guard our purity before a watching world because we are here for their good to preserve the good that God has in our communities. It's not all bad though. I want you to also hear very clearly just how effective you are at being salt where God has put you. See, a lot of times you don't actually notice the fact that you are having this effect until way later or sometimes not at all, even though it's still true about you. Uh, so many of you in this uh, congregation have 
been transparently pouring yourselves out into our community. And you have influence in spheres that God is really using you to restrain our community from being worse than it possibly could be. Some of you are serving as uh, members of boards of important parts of our community. Some of you are teachers. Some of you are mentors. Some of you are counselors, nurses, coaches. Some of you opened up your home to adopt children into your family. Others of you are fostering children or doing safe families. Others of you are just willing to talk to that neighbor at the end of the street that no one else wants to talk to. But because of you're a follower of Jesus, you're willing to step into these situations. And brothers and sisters, you need to hear, you are salt there whether you realize it or not. On a day like Father's Day, fathers, I want you to hear just what a profound impact you are having on your families as you live as a committed Christian. Think back in your own life. How many worse things might you have done if not for the phrase in your head, just wait till dad hears about that? The fact is, God is using you, even if things aren't going the way you hope, even if people aren't coming to Christ necessarily. If you weren't here, things would simply be worse. The reason I can say that so confidently is because I know what you are. You're salt, and salt preserves. If you're in need of encouragement to know this is true, there's a bit of sociology that backs this up. There's a prevailing wisdom among sociologists over the last uh, 50 years or so that missionaries in particular, missionaries going overseas, um, were, have been doing more harm than good. Uh, mainly coming from um, secular sociology, the idea is that missionary enterprises are basically just a form of colonialism. You, you export your ideas, you gain control of our population, you kind of crush their culture, and you take all the goods out of it. You're, it's kind of a way of vacuuming up resources. Well, that was all essentially agreed upon wisdom in most sociological cir circles until very recently. A man named Robert Woodbury uh, thought he had stumbled upon a link that everyone else was missing, a link between missionaries going into a country in the 19th century and countries flourishing. He wrote a uh, dissertation called The Missionary Roots of Modern Democracy. In it, he looked at countries that allowed missionaries inside of them in the 19th century and compared them to neighboring countries that didn't. He gave an example of two different parts of the Congo. And he looked at things like how many murders there were, how many schools there are today, uh, how well off are the women in that society, what are the infant mortality rates, so, uh, the broadest sort of measures you could get of the flourishing of a society. What he found shocked him. He came to the conclusion that missionaries, far from doing damage, were actually a great cause for good. He kept on dialing into it and doing more research because this was so counter to the perceived wisdom of the day. He brought it to secular journals, ones that were not receptive to the idea initially, and had to win them over with lots and lots of documentation. At the end of the day, his thought has entered into academia as accepted. And here's a summary of what his thesis is. Areas where Protestant missionaries, particularly missionaries that engage in evangelism, 
had a significant presence in the past are on average more economically developed with comparatively better health, lower infant mortality, lower corruption, greater literacy, higher educational attainment, especially for women, and more robust membership in non-governmental associations. In short, if you want a blossoming democracy today, the solution is simple. That is if you have a time machine. Send a 19th century missionary in. You hear that? See, whether we could see the effects or not, what is true of us is what Jesus says here. You are salt. The very fact that you are in this community living consistently for Jesus means you are preserving this community. Sometimes we lose heart because we don't see the impact of what we're doing. But friends, see with eyes of faith. It's worth the difficulty of living for Jesus in the world because you were put here to preserve. Well, that's the negative side of the coin. We can flip it around the other way. We could say we're not just here to play defense. We also need to be on offense. And that's what the second metaphor Jesus uses in verses 14 through 16 is about. While it's true we're here to, pre to preserve, it's also true that we are here to project this time Jesus changes the, the metaphor from salt to light. He declares, you are the light of the world. Uh, this is one of those cases where uh, if you know your Old Testament, you'll understand what Jesus is saying much more readily. So if you have your Bible, flip with me to Isaiah chapter 60. Isaiah 60 will be in verses 1 through 3. Uh, so much of the Sermon on the Mount is assuming you know your Old Testament. It's either alluding to it or directly tying into its teaching. Isaiah 60, 1 through 3. A text reads, Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and the thick darkness the people's. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. In this text, Isaiah is looking forward to a day when God's people are pictured as being in the midst of a world filled with darkness. And then something very different breaks in. God's very light starts shining in, and it shines on this people. And then here's the real punchline of it. Then they themselves start, start shining. They become projectors of that same glory. Jesus is quoting this text, alluding to it, and teaching along the same lines that God's people are actually projecting the glory of God into the communities where he has placed them. Now, it's true that Jesus himself said that he is the light of the world. And as Isaiah 60 shows us, if it were not for the fact that God's glory has shined upon us, we would not ourselves be projecting anything. So this is a derivative sort of light. It's a little bit like the moon. The moon on its own does not emit light. It, it's a hunk of rock 
orbiting around us. And yet the moon seems to glow at night because the rays from the sun bounce off it. It's a derivative light source in that way. Jesus is here saying, Christians are themselves emitters of light, projecting the glory of God. Now let's just recognize what this means. This is pretty basic to the gospel itself. That on its own, humanity does not have within it the guidance or direction or goodness in order to attain flourishing life the way God intended it. The Bible describes us as in thick darkness. That, that's both a uh, metaphor as well as a description of our hopelessness. But the good news is that God sent the very light of the world into the world. He sent his very son, Jesus, to come down to fill in the world what was lacking, to show us what God is like and to show us a way back to him. How did he do that? He did it by going into the deepest, darkness, darkest day of the world. The darkest day of the day he hung up on the cross at Calvary. Where there was literal darkness over the land. Where he experienced the darkness of the wrath of God upon him. And then three days later, something amazing happened. Light broke forth as Jesus came back from the dead. And now all those who put their faith in him become sources of light themselves. Jesus says, you are light, the light of the world. How does that light get shown? Well, two ways. Wrapped up in that idea of light is the idea of truth. So certainly through talking about Jesus, sharing the gospel. But then more central to what Jesus is saying here is uh, in verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Jesus says that you shine through your words and your deeds. You show Jesus and his glory to people around you when you live as a committed Christian. And then when you do that, you actually bring light into the place God has put you. Now, let's be clear. Jesus tells us that it's quite possible to lose that light. And in fact, he gives us two images that show it's possible, much like it was to lose our saltiness, for us to lose our effectiveness when it comes to shining light. They're both really well known, and in some ways they've lost some of their power as a result. Uh, The first is this city on a hill. Um, Now, if you go back and you Google that, you'll see it's been used In political context in the U.S., um, as far back as our nation has been founded, people have been using this city on a hill narrative, uh, city on a hill image, to talk about the United States. Uh, That is not what Jesus is talking about here. Uh, He is very clearly talking about all Christians in all parts of the world and the role they have in showing the glory of God in their words and their deeds. His point is that if you are out in the middle of a dark wilderness, and you somehow stumbled your way anywhere close to a city lit up even by torchlight, it would be impossible for you to miss it because that's what light does. When it shines in darkness, it goes on and on and on, and you see its glow. Jesus' point is you can't hide light. That's not what it's for. It's there to shine. The second image is the same sort of idea. You picture someone taking an oil lamp and lighting it, He says, what sense would it make 
to light a lamp and then cover it up with a basket. I mean, one, it costs money. Two, you might catch the basket on fire. Three, it's just dumb. Why in the world would you do it? That is not a thing, is what Jesus is saying. His point is that there is no such thing, or there should be no such thing, as a hidden Christian. There should not be a Christian that's living with their head down, trying to make sure no one knows what they really believe or think, or what they hope for the world around them. As Christians, we are meant to shine. We're meant for people to see Jesus in us and through us. You can see this powerfully in the, light, in the life of a guy named Louis Zamperini. Um, you may have read the book Unbroken. It was a New York Times bestseller a few years back. Louis is an amazing guy. He ran in the Olympics. Um, he was a prisoner of war in World War II. Um, endured horrific conditions. After the war, he became a Christian and gave his life over to reaching kids. He, he ran youth camps well into his 90s. Along the way, he had a really interesting friendship that developed. He became friends with someone who, as far as I know, is not a Christian, um, actress Angelina Jolie. She became so smitten by the 90-something-year-old Louis Zamperini that she decided to make a movie about him. Uh, the movie Unbroken came out a couple years ago. You can watch it. She was the, the driving force behind getting that accomplished. What you may not know is that as the movie was getting close to its finishing stages of production, Louis' health finally started declining at the age of 97. He ended up in the hospital, and it was pretty obvious he wasn't going to make it. But Angelina Jolie could not stand the thought of Louis not seeing the movie meant to honor him. So she actually took an unfinished copy of the movie on a computer, drove to his hospital bed, and showed him the movie. This is what she says about that experience. There's no Hollywood premiere that would mean more than sitting in that room alone with him at the end of his days. As a man of faith, he, was very much, uh, he very much believed he would see everyone soon in heaven. And he was preparing for that. So he was revisiting his memories to prepare himself to pass away. And I was fortunate enough as a human being to witness that moment. So there's nothing that could mean more than that. See the light that was shining? It's beautiful. It attracts people to Jesus when you live that way. Brothers and sisters, we can't live as hidden Christians trying to avoid people finding out what we truly are or what we truly believe. You are intended to be a projector of the glory of Jesus. We need to be shining. So I need to ask ourselves, we need to ask ourselves, are we shining or are we hiding? Think about when you do something nice for one of your neighbors. Maybe there's someone on your block that needs a little help around the ha house. Uh, maybe you uh, send one of your kids over or you yourself go and mow their lawn. Um, usually after that happens, people are very thankful. Maybe they'll even say something like, oh, thank you so much for doing that. Bless your heart. You are just the most wonderful person. Oh, thank you so much. They're very effusive. And in that moment, it's tempting to just deflect it and say, oh, you know, no big deal. That's just the type of person I am, you know. Uh, it, it's easy to just kind of push it off. But in that moment, you realize you actually have a great opportunity. You can tell them, it was my pleasure to serve you. 
Can I just tell you why I did that? It's because God so served me by sending Jesus. And I'm a follower of his, so uh, I actually enjoy loving you uh, because of what God did for me. Now, you don't have to be overbearing as you do that. But realize when you don't give Jesus the glory, you don't let his light shine through you, you're actually shining the light of your own glory in that moment. You're stealing Jesus' light. Another way that sometimes Christians functionally hide the glory of Jesus is that when it comes to their political involvement, particularly if you're my age or younger, um, studies seem to show that we are a little nervous about how we engage in the public square as Christians. And, and let me just say, I understand that hesitancy. There's a lot of the messaging in the, the public square is that we need to keep our faith in the dark, sit down and shut up, and maybe vote but not talk about it. And yet, as Christians, that's not really an option for us. I, I mean, I, I hope you're voting because you, out of love of neighbor, you're trying to use the resources God's put around you to bring benefit to the people you're living with. And if that's the case, there's nothing to be ashamed of, of saying, friend, you know, the reason why I'm voting this way is actually because I love you, because God first loved me. Let me show you how my Christian conviction leads me to this conclusion. Now, I understand there, there needs to be tremendous humility when it comes to how Christians think about something like politics. It's quite possible for believers to come to different conclusions about particular policy points. It's very possible for Christians to be members of different political parties. So we need to do that with tremendous humility. And yet if we're engaging in it as if we don't have con Christian conviction, we, we leave that at the door before we go into the ballot box, or if even worse, we're engaging in sub-Christian behavior in order to win political points, Friends, we are not shining the, way, the light of Jesus the way we ought to. You need to really ask yourself a question. If you ever find yourself using a double standard in a political conversation, or, or really scoring a political point with a tone, you know is not going to further your ability to talk with someone about Jesus. At that point, you need to ask the question, whose light am I trying to shine? The light of political power? Or the light of Jesus? If you don't know how to put these thoughts together, uh, there's some good resources on this. I'd be glad to point you toward them after the service. But let's remember what we're here to do. We're here to preserve. And we're here to project. We're here as ambassadors for Jesus. So let's live like it. Told you about man who was engaged in politics, William Wilberforce at the beginning, he had this crisis of conscience. Do I have to pull myself out of public life and service in order to walk with Jesus? Well, Wilberforce, thankfully, had good Christian influences around him. He came across a preacher named John Newton, who essentially talked him into staying in politics and using it as salt and light within the British Empire. This is what Newton said. He said, it's hoped and believed that the Lord has raised you up for the good of his church and for the good of the nation. Wilberforce got the message, and he decided to make the abolition of the slave trade his life's mission. He put himself to doing everything possible to put an end to the evil that was 
human slave trading. He said, God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of morals. Wilberforce had great difficulty in his task. He spent basically his whole life fighting that cause on expressly Christian grounds. Three days before he died, he got word that he had achieved his victory. Slave trade was going to be done in the British Empire. Christopher Hancock, writing about him later, said, the most malignant evil in the British Empire ceased largely because of the faith and persistence of William Wilberforce. Brothers and sisters, you are here for the good of this world. You're here as ambassadors of Jesus. You're salt. You're light. Live like it. Believe it. And watch as God uses you to bless this world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are thankful Thankful that you would give us the great privilege of being counted among the citizens of heaven. Not because we are worthy, not because we have earned it, but by your grace alone. Thank you that you give us the further role of being your ambassadors in this world, of being salt and light and seeing your blessings to our communities through us. Will you help us to live up to that calling? Give us wisdom, give us courage. Would you help us to live visibly and transparently as projectors of Jesus and as preserving agents in the place you've put us? Lord, I ask you particularly, would you use the people in this very room, this congregation, would you use them to bless our neighbors and would their good works lead others to glorify you, our Father in heaven? We pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.